I'm not real sure what frivolity is. Not sure it's a good thing, but I'm going to look it up. May have to come to that event to find out what it is, right? Um, I will say this. After the lesson this morning, my doctor and former friend, <laughs> David Longley, told me, it is true, you do have the body of an Olympic athlete who plays ping pong. So, <laughs> thanks for clearing that up. You know, in 2002, Bill O'Reilly was interviewing a minister at a Presbyterian church in New York City. The church was active in helping the homeless, and O'Reilly told the minister on national television, he said, Jesus would have demanded that the homeless people shape up or else, because we all know that verse in the Bible, God only helps those who help themselves. Oops, right? You might want to check and see if what you're quoting is actually in the Bible before you say it, right? But this happens all the time, whether it's pro-athletes or politicians or even preachers, right? They quote these phantom scriptures, and we assume that they're in the scriptures, or we assume that they pulled them from the Bible, when in actuality, they're nowhere to be found. The scripture that we're going to look at this evening that would be classified as one of those phantom scriptures is the one that Bill O'Reilly quoted to that Presbyterian minister. God only helps those who help themselves. Now, you won't find that in Scripture, but I think we can admit that the principle is somewhat found in Scripture, right? I mean, you remember it was Paul who said, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. You know, we despise the lazy in our culture. You know, we're not going to help someone who is unwilling to do anything for themselves, and this Scripture, at least, seems to reiterate that, right? If someone is willing and able to do something, then they should. You shouldn't expect a free ride. There's no such thing as a free lunch, right? When I turned 16 years of age, my parents told me, we're going to help you with a vehicle, but you've got to get a part-time job and help with the payments and with the insurance. I can remember my mother being a school teacher, going into her and saying, hey, can you help me with this problem in math or whatever it is? And I remember her vividly saying, well, I'm not going to do it for you. I mean, that's not an unreasonable principle, right? We'll help you buy a car, but you've got to help with the payments, or I can help you with your homework, but I'm not going to do it for you. So we understand the principle, right? Helping those who help themselves is a very logical, reasonable concept. No one should just expect to have things handed to them. And in fact, we see in Scripture several places that talks about how you must do something in order to gain something, right? James 4 and 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Or what about Matthew 16, 24? Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So there is this sense that we could accurately state that God helps those who help themselves. That if we do certain things, God is going to bless those choices. The person who would rather just open their mouth and have God shovel in the word and then, you know, massage his jaw so he can chew it and then tickle his throat so he'll swallow it. I mean, that person's going to be very disappointed because you have to do something here. You can't just sit and expect God to do all the work. In other words, I've said it before, you can't give the minimum and expect God to give the maximum. Remember Jesus' words to the lukewarm Christians in Laodicea? Remember how he talked about he would spit them out of his mouth, that they made him sick? In Proverbs 6, 6 through 7, it reads, Go to the ant, 
O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. So we're told to go and observe the ant because apparently the ant is a good example of what we should be like in productivity and working and, and making sure that we are providing for our needs as much as possible. So, there is a certain amount of truth to this, this mythical piece of Scripture. Certainly, we can understand that the principle, at least, is there to some degree. But, it's not an absolute truth. A broken clock is right twice a day, right? And so when we look at this, we can't say that God only helps those who help themselves is something that applies in every situation and to every person. Because when you think of it like this, whether we can help ourselves or not depends on what the problem is, right? If I am an ignorant person about any subject, then I can go and get some education concerning that subject. If I am someone who is drowning, I need someone to bail me out, to throw me a lifeline, to rescue me. It depends on what the problem is as to whether or not we can help ourselves. And in a spiritual sense, we've got a major problem, right, outside of Christ? If you are outside of Christ, you can't help yourself because your problem is your dead. And deadness is a problem that only God can solve. Resurrection comes from only one person, and that is God. Only He is in the resurrection business. And so when we talk about helping those who help themselves, it depends on what the problem is. And this notion that God only helps those who help themselves doesn't translate when it comes to my salvation because that is something that I cannot do on my own. God must intervene because I am completely and totally helpless. I think we've talked about this before, but there's, there's a guy by the name of Jeremy Bentham that when he was alive, he gave orders that when he died, his entire estate be given to the University Hospital in London on one condition, that his body be preserved and that he be present at every board meeting. And as far as I know, that wish is still carried out today. Jeremy Bentham's corpse is rolled up to the boardroom table and every meeting they say, Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. And that's kind of how we are outside of Christ. We're not dead physically. We can still go to the grocery store. We can still work on our vehicle. We can still raise our kids and go to work and all those kind of things. Physically, we're alive. But spiritually, it's as if, it's as if we're present but not voting, right? We are dead. And that's a problem that has eternal ramifications and one that we cannot cure on our own. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You know, I often hear people talk about how those who are lost in sin are sick. You're not sick. If you were sick, just the right type of medicine could help you. But, you know, when you go to the cemetery to visit a loved one, you don't stop by a James McCoy drugstore because that's not going to do any good. Penicillin or something like that, it's not going to do any good, right? We understand the difference in being sick and being dead. And so when we're talking about a spiritual problem such as death, 
We're not talking about a sickness. We're not talking about something that the, just the right dose of medicine can cure. We're talking about resurrection. And only God can do that. Deadness is a problem that only Jesus can remedy. Salvation is atonement, not attainment. It comes from believing, not achieving. Man is spiritually bankrupt. He can't even pay the interest on what he owes, much less the principal, right? And salvation is also not a DIY project. It's not a do-it-yourself kind of thing. And thankfully, God doesn't see it that way. God didn't create us and then abandon us. Instead, he saw our great need, and he met that great need. 1 Peter 2, 24 states, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Please hear me on this. Everything ultimately depends on grace. Everything. And now, before you jump in and say, yeah, but, yeah, but, because that's what we want to do, right? We hear that statement like that, and we, we want to hurry up and follow that up. Yeah, you've got to talk about obedience. We'll get there. But you have to understand, everything depends ultimately on grace. Because this is not something that you can remedy on your own. And we shouldn't have to apologize for that. And we shouldn't have to put disclaimers on that. The Bible speaks to it, right? In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Our motivation in Christianity is grace. It's His love for us that motivates us. Every morning, you wake up to the glorious fact that God has shown you grace. And as I've said before, even the person outside of Christ has been shown grace by God. The very fact that He gets to live another day and have the opportunity to come to Christ is a manifestation of God's grace. It all begins and ends with grace. And you know as well as I do that this grace is something that we don't deserve. It's not something that we can earn or something we can merit. That's well-covered ground. Though we can absolutely do nothing to merit or earn it, though it is a gift, you know what I'm going to say next, right? A gift is only a gift if you receive it. Surely you've heard that enough from me, right? The gift of grace is only a gift if we receive it. You can ignore a gift. You can refuse a gift. You can treat a gift in a way that you don't appreciate it. We've all gotten a gift that we didn't appreciate, right? I mean, we've all gotten a gift that ended up in a yard sale the next week, right? Or that we wrapped up and gave to somebody else hoping that they would find something to do with it. But when we talk about a gift being given, like the gift of grace, we treasure this gift. We cherish it. By doing what? By being a recipient who meets the conditions of the gift. I, I don't think many of you probably in here play the lottery. But if you did and you won, do you think they're going to come to your house and knock on the door and say, hey, we heard that you won, here's the million dollars. What are you going to have to do? You're probably going to have to redeem the ticket, right? You can't just call them up and say, hey, yeah, I won. Okay, we'll send the money. Give us your address. You're going to have to prove that. You're going to have to redeem that ticket. It's not just a free gift in the sense that we're just going to give it to you without anything on your part having to be done. 
And so we understand that a gift can still be a gift, even though there are some conditions to that gift that I have to meet. And I'm not meeting those conditions because I'm trying to earn anything or merit anything. I'm meeting those conditions because that's what it means to be a thankful recipient. It all starts with grace. Grace is God's part in the plan of salvation. Faith is man's part in that plan. Yeah, I said it ultimately all depends on grace. For us, it all starts with faith. Some would say it all starts with baptism. No, it all starts with faith. Faith, properly understood, properly lived, will express itself in action. You've heard that a bunch from me too. Baptism is an expression of our faith, as is repentance, as is confessing Jesus as Lord. If you don't have that type of faith that expresses itself in action, James says you have a dead faith. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James isn't referring to works of merit. He's not talking about earning this in any way, shape, or form. He's talking about having a faith that expresses itself in action. And you won't find a single Christian in the Bible who didn't express their faith. You won't find a single saved person in the New Testament who just sat there and didn't do anything. It's a call to action. Grace is a gift which implies a giver, and a gift can be rejected. It can be refused. It, 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 it can't be forced on us or else it's not a gift, right? It becomes an obligation then, and that's not what this is. There are gifts that come with conditions, and, and when we talk about the gift of grace... We talk about our part in receiving that gift. And when we talk about our part in receiving that gift, we're talking about faith and a faith that expresses itself in action. We must respond to what's been offered. Grace had to act in order to give. And so we have to act in order to receive. That just makes sense, right? Here's the beauty of all of this. When we say God only helps those who help themselves... That may be true in certain situations. You might confine that principle in the Bible. But when it comes to our salvation, God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And you know what we call that? We call that the gospel. I mean, in a nutshell, that's what the gospel is. That God met the requirements for us that we couldn't meet for ourselves. That God looked upon us with our great need, and he said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to abandon you. I don't want you to live ostracized from me forever. And so he met the conditions for us. We couldn't meet those requirements. We don't, we don't have the perfect sacrifice, but he did. He became the perfect sacrifice so that we could live in fellowship with him. That's the gospel that God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So again, it depends on what, what the problem is. And when the problem is deadness, when the problem is being exiled and separated from God, well, there's only one who can fix that. Doesn't mean that we don't have to do something, but it means that God had to act with the gift of grace. Once we come to the full realization of what God has done for us, then we, we realize that there's more for us to do. 
I mean, how could we ever sit on our hands and do nothing? Obedience is motivated by love, and love does something. Love doesn't just sit idly by. Love acts, and it is not self-seeking and self-serving. Love strives to do the will of the Father because the Father is responsible for curing our deadness. And when someone has cured your deadness, when you are resurrected to walk in newness of life, when you had no hope, when you were lost, but now you have eternity on the horizon, and that eternity is filled with being in the presence of of the glory of God, how can we sit idly by and do nothing? How can we sit on our hands and do nothing? How can we, how can we ever just assume that it's enough to be a lazy Christian? This bothers me with the Lord's church, and you see it all too often today. People giving this much and expecting this much in return. Not just from God, but from other Christians as well, right? I mean, it's all about what, what you can do for me. God is the one that's the magic genie or Santa Claus or whatever, but even the church itself, the church is there to serve me. That's their job. It's the, they're there to, to, to give me what I want and what I need. And, and to some degree, yes, the church should be feeding you, and yes, the church should be giving you opportunities to be involved and to serve, but you can't give the minimum and expect the maximum. Our whole vision and perception of church has become distorted and perverted to where we see it as a building that we come to. And as the customer or consumer, the people meet my needs. And if they don't, I'm out of there and I go on to the next one, right? And unfortunately, we've kind of perpetrate, uh, per perpetuated that idea. We haven't helped ourselves with that. We've talked about that enough. The church is not, is not here in this, it's not this building of brick and mortar, it, it's us, right? And so we understand what God did for us, and so we seek to do that for others, that we, we show them the gift of grace, we, we want them to see the difference that that gift can make in our lives. That's what it's about. We come here to worship and to fellowship with one another, and we leave here as the church to serve others, to hopefully get them to understand what it means to be in fellowship with God and fellowship with others and to worship Him and to live your life for Him. You know, a vast majority of our population believes that the phrase, God only helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. You know what that tells me? That people don't know the Bible. One of the biggest problems in the religious world is that we don't know God. And we don't know God because we don't know His Word. And if you don't believe me, just turn on the TV and look at any religious programming just about, except our show. I mean, you'll find that over and over again, people spouting off these things, and they'll give anybody a microphone to say things, and you're going, wait, what Bible are you reading? Where are you getting that from, right? We see these phantom scriptures come up all the time. We see things that are perverted and distorted because people don't know the Bible. They don't know God. They don't know His Word. You know, Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac is where this idea of God helps those who help themselves, that's where that idea came from. Did you know that? It was taken from one of Aesop's fables called Hercules and the Wagoner. It's a story about a wagoner's heavy load gets bogged down in the mud, and in despair, the wagoner cries out to Hercules. And Hercules replies, get up and put your shoulder to the wheel. The gods help those who help themselves. Isn't it ironic? That that phrase that many people believe in the Bible is in the Bible 
actually had its origin in Greek mythology. A polytheistic religion is where this came from, and somehow people think it worked its way in the Bible. Here's something that, that I think we can agree on, both that it happens and that it shouldn't happen. That as Christians, we buy into these concepts like God helps those who help themselves because we really, we try to be our own Savior all the time, don't we? I mean, we know that we can't save ourselves. We know that this isn't about a performance, and yet we make it about that all too often. And we see salvation as something that, you know, that we control, which we do to some degree, right? But we see it based on how good we are, how, how well we perform before God, and he'll give us an A on our report card, and then we'll get to go to heaven. And so we're always trying to help ourselves. Instead of throwing up our hands and realizing I can't do this myself because this is not a problem that I can fix on my own. You know, you look at other world religions. Other world religions are based on what you must do as an adherent in order to get to their version of heaven. You know, if it's, if it's Buddhism, it's about mortifying your own existence and being your own light. You know, there's, there's these acts, whatever the world religion is. Some of them, it's maintaining a scrupulous diet or it's about, you know, uh, making a pilgrimage, whatever it is. All the other world religions are based on something that you must do. But that's what's so unique and beautiful about Christianity is it's based on what God has already done. Christianity is a religion that is based on what Jesus has already done for you on the cross. And so while you as the recipient of that free gift meet the conditions. This is not something you could ever earn or merit to begin with. If, only, if God only helps those who help themselves, we're all in trouble. We're all in a world of hurt. We have no hope, and heaven has never appeared so far away. Because God's entire plan for redemption for mankind is based on the fact that you cannot help yourself. Right? I mean, that's what grace is. That's what the gospel is. This whole thing is based on the fact that you cannot help yourself. That only Jesus can meet the requirements of a perfect Savior that we so desperately needed. Thank you for being here today, tonight. I hope that, uh, and hope and pray that as you leave tonight, you will seek to be the church and you will understand that you can have a powerful influence there are people that you can reach that I will never have the opportunity to say a word to. There are people that you get to be a light to. There are people that you may be the only Bible they ever read. Be aware of that. Pay attention to that. And be a light. And maybe you'll have the opportunity to tell them about this gift that's so glorious you have a need tonight that we can help you with there's something on your mind your heart that you need the prayers and support of this church family or if you'd like to set up a bible study or whatever your need might be don't leave here tonight without being right with god come now as we stand and as we sing on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and